Luke chapter 9 this morning, verse 51. It came to pass when the time was come that he should be received up, he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem and sent messengers before his face, and they went and entered into a village of the Samaritans to make ready for him, and they did not receive him because his face was as though he would go to Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, will thou that we command fire to come down from heaven and consume them, even as Elias did? But he turned and rebuked them and said, You know not what manner of spirit you are of, for the Son of Man is not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went to another village. May God bless the reading of his word today is my prayer. You may be seated. When the time was come, when the time was come, we have picked up toward the end of a very action-packed passage of Scripture in Luke chapter 9. Uh, it begins with the sending out of the disciples, and they went out and were preaching and performing miracles, and proceeds then with the feeding of the 5,000 and its aftermath, and then discusses several scenes of interaction with Jesus. Probably the most prominent thing that we'll notice in Luke chapter 9, the most famous thing at least, would be the Mount of Transfiguration experience, also recorded in the midst of all of this. But in every scene that plays out here in Luke chapter 9, there's one thing that just keeps coming up again and again and again. And that was the fact that the looming shadow of the cross of Jesus Christ was laying across everything that he did. Now, he would talk to his disciples in this very chapter about how important it was for all of them, if they wanted to follow him, to take up their cross and follow him. Uh, but in a sense, Jesus was already carrying the cross in his heart. It was on his heart. It's on his mind. He was going to Jerusalem, and it just comes up again and again and again. Look at it in verse 28. It came to pass about eight days after this saying, he took Peter and John and James, you can see it up there, and went up into a mountain to pray. And as he prayed, the fashion of his countenance was altered, and his raiment was white and glistening. And behold, there talked with him two men, which were Moses and Elias, that's Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his decease, which he should accomplish at Jerusalem. But Peter and they that were with him, that was James and John, by the way, were heavy with sleep. And when they were, uh, were awake, they saw his glory and the two men that stood with him. Luke gives us some very intriguing details about the Mount of Transfiguration experience. Uh, if you've ever wondered what Moses and Elijah and Jesus were talking about on the mountain, well, you don't have to wonder because Luke tells us what they were talking about. They were talking about the cross. How would you have liked to have listened in to that conversation with Jesus, Moses, and Elijah talking about the cross of Calvary? After the feeding of the 5,000, 
It came to pass as he was alone praying, verse 18, his disciples were with him and asked him, saying, whom, he asked them, saying, whom say the people that I am? And they answered, saying, John the Baptist, and some say Elias, and others say that one of the prophets has risen again. He said unto them, but whom say ye that I am? And Peter answering said, the Christ of God. And he straightly charged them and commanded them to tell no man that thing, saying, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be slain and be raised the third day. There it is again. After the transfiguration and the healing of the demon-possessed boy, Luke 9, 43, and they were all amazed at the mighty power of God, but while they wondered everyone at all things which Jesus did, he said unto his disciples, let these sayings sink down into your ears. For the Son of Man shall be delivered into the hands of men. There it is again. You see why I say the looming shadow of the cross was hanging over everything that Jesus was doing. And then in our text, when the time was come, I never see that, that I don't think about all the times that I, I heard uh, those two words that just change everything, turn your life upside down. It's time. <laughs> I, I heard that five times. It, it's time. I knew exactly what it meant. You know what time it was? Yeah, it's time for me to crank the car up and get us to the hospital. Yeah, that's what it was. I knew my role very well. I had a very important role. No, I didn't. I just... I did have to get her there. It's time. There's other situations that uh, those two words come to us. It's time. Well, it was time. When the time was come, and at that monumental moment, the disciples were, for the most part, making a nuisance of themselves. We've already seen how that Peter, James, and John dozed off on the mountain of transfiguration. How could you do that? Such an incredible time when Jesus was praying, and as he was praying, the Bible says, then his countenance was changed, and he was suddenly clothed in white raiment, and, and the glory that was on the inside came on the outside. And what were the disciples doing at such a glorious moment when that incredible conversation was taking place? What were they doing? <laughs> They nodded off. They went to sleep. And when they woke up, of course, it was at that moment that Peter took it upon himself to interrupt that incredible conversation. Lord, it's good for us to be here. Let's build three tabernacles. No wonder God told him to hush. How can you wake up and interrupt Jesus, Moses, and Elijah talking about the cross? You ever noticed how many times Peter interrupted the conversation about the cross? They didn't want to hear it. Didn't want to hear it. But they were dozing off on the mountain of transfiguration. Maybe that explains at least part of what happened next. Uh, verse 40, uh, when they dealt with the demon-possessed boy, they couldn't cast him out. And they said, I besought thy disciples to cast him out, and they could not. 
And Jesus answering said, O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you and suffer you? Bring your son to me. I preached on that a few weeks ago. What happened next? Verse 46. There arose a reasoning, a dispute among them, which of them should be greatest? That's the disciples. And Jesus, perceiving the thought of their heart, took a child and set him by him and said unto him, Whosoever shall receive this child in my name receiveth me, and whosoever shall receive me receiveth him that sent me. For he that is least among you all, the same shall be great. There was Jesus already laboring under the burden of the cross in his heart. And of all times, the disciples picked this moment to have a church squabble. Boy, don't you know that blessed Jesus' heart. Nothing like a good church squabble to get you all excited about. Much, you know, I've never met a church squabble that I liked. I'll tell you right up front. I like what the psalmist said, Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. That's what I like. Contextually, it would appear that uh, the other disciples were perhaps upset because Peter, James, and John got to go up on the mountain and they didn't. Jesus had paid Simon Peter's temple tax uh, by finding that coin in the fish's mouth, but he didn't pay everybody else's temple tax. Uh, there was an ongoing thing with James and John. Even their mama got in on the act about asking them to be on the right hand and the left hand of Jesus in his glory. Uh, not, not that God's people would ever be jealous of one another <laughs> if one of them got a blessing and the others didn't get it or somebody got special treatment and we didn't get it. That would never happen among God's people. Oh, yeah, we, have, we, we, we do have a problem with that sometimes. A bunch of jealous disciples squabbling. No wonder he cried out, How long will I be with you and suffer you? But that's something we expect to hear from a kindergarten teacher. When's the bell going to ring? <laughs> Get me out of here. Oh, how long will I suffer with you? In the midst of all of that, I did not belabor the point. I wanted you to see what was going on in Luke 9. In the midst of all of that, when the time was come and he is headed to Jerusalem, That amazing passage in our text. He sent messengers to a village of Samaria. Go prepare them. Tell them I'm on the way. Get a crowd together. Jesus is coming. With all this going on, he sends a message to this village. Get them ready to hear from me. Jesus makes time for a village in Samaria. Well, a couple of quick things, two or three quick things I want to show us today that happened then uh, when the time was come. And of course, the first thing that you see is that rejecting community. Uh, when Jesus uh, was, uh, was about to be received up, he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem, but he sent messengers before his face, and they went and entered into a village of the Samaritans to make ready for him. And they did not receive him because his face was as though he would go to Jerusalem. 
It's interesting that Luke called the disciples at this point messengers. It reminds us of that one who was called the messenger who was sent before him to prepare the way of the Lord. Well, what happened to good old John the Baptist? Uh, Well, Herodias had danced his head off. That's what had happened. He was dead. But there were other messengers, and now in the exact same kind of phrase, Jesus said, I'm sending these messengers before me. He wanted them to go into that village, tell them Jesus is coming. What an announcement. Gather a crowd. Get them together. I'm going to stop. I'm on my way to Jerusalem, but I want to stop in this village. Go before me and get them ready. And they did. Considering what had happened with the woman at the well in Samaria, we might expect Jesus to have received a magnificent response. But instead, these people rejected him because they realized he was on his way to Jerusalem, and Jerusalem was on his heart and mind. We don't know exactly how they figured this out. Maybe the disciples told them. Maybe they let it slip. Maybe the, the, the Samaritan, maybe Jesus himself talked to them about it. Uh, exactly, I mean, he was talking to everybody else about it. We would expect it to come up again as he talked to the Samaritans. It was on his heart. It was on his mind. But when they realized that his face was set to Jerusalem, he was on his way to Jerusalem, they rejected him. You're going to Jerusalem? Well, get on then. When they figured out that he wasn't making a special trip just for them, they were done. Don't treat us like a side stop on your way to Jerusalem. You go to Jerusalem, go on. They didn't, you see, Jesus didn't come to them the way they wanted him to come. He wasn't doing what they wanted him to do. He wasn't behaving the way they wanted him to behave. Have you ever thought about it? Maybe just sometime in your spare time, just spend a little time thinking about maybe the demands that we place on the Almighty from time to time. As if we have the right to question what God does. As if we have the right to expect him to meet our understanding and behave himself in a way that we can comprehend and we can approve of. The demands we make on the Almighty, here they were. On his way to Jerusalem, headed to the place where the drama of all the ages was going to play out on Golgotha's crest. Jesus made time to visit with this village in Samaria. Aren't you glad this morning that Jesus Christ makes time for you every time you speak his name? It doesn't matter how many billions of people he's got to take care of. It doesn't matter what kind of business he's on. When you speak the name of Jesus, you have the attention of the Almighty. And if all he does is listen to what you and me have to say, He's done more than we deserve. Amen? He listens. We have his attention. Whatever else happens or doesn't happen, he has heard our cry. I love to preach on Jeremiah 33.3, God's phone number, call unto me, and I will answer thee. Yeah. Oh, what a privilege this village missed. By rejecting Jesus. Then there's the reactive conclusion that we see. The the rejecting uh, a, a community. Then notice the reactive conclusion, verse 54. And when his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, 
Wilt thou that we command fire to come down from heaven and consume them, even as Elijah did? But he turned and rebuked them and said, You know not what manner of spirit you are of. For the Son of Man has not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And so they went on to another village. These two sons of Zebedee, Zebedee sorry, that Jesus nicknamed the sons of thunder, were perhaps living up to their names in this passage. They suggested that a little fire from heaven might be appropriate at this time. And the story that they refer to as Elijah did is actually recorded for us in 2 Kings chapter 1. Now I'm not going to take the time because I'd have to read the whole chapter to you, but I do have a couple of screens up here for you to kind of set the stage for you. Now Ahaziah, that was the king, fell through the lattice of his upper room in Samaria and he was injured. So he sent messengers and said to them, go inquire of Baalzebub, that, yeah that's right, Lord of the flies himself, Baalzebub, the god of Ekron, whether I shall recover from this injury. But the angel of the Lord said to Elijah the Tishbite, Arise, go up to meet the messengers of the king of Samaria, and say to them, Is it because there is no God in Israel that you are going to inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron? Now therefore thus says the Lord, You shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. So Elijah did exactly what God told him. He went and met those messengers of the king, told them exactly what God had told him to say. They turned around, went back to the king, and told them exactly that. Is there no God in Israel that you've gone to inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron, that's the Philistine's god? Because you've done this, you're going to die and not live. How would you like to have been those messengers? Well, the king asked them. Next slide. The king asked them, well, who is it? That, that told you this thing. Well, we didn't know his name. Uh, what did he look like? Well, he was dressed in rough clothes. And he was a hairy guy. That sound familiar? That's, it's uh, in the text. Ah, I know who that was, the king said. That was Elijah. That was Elijah the Tishbite. Now, you might think that the king might repent and cry out to God for mercy, but he didn't. He called forth the captain with 50 men sent him out and said, you go and arrest that man. You go call him down and bring him back here to me. So here goes the captain with 50 men. They find Elijah sitting up on a rock, and they said, come down right now. <laughs> Old man of God, they said, come down. Elijah responded, if I'm a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and burn you up. And it did. 2 Kings chapter 1. I am not making this up. So when the king found out about it, don't know how he found out about it, but he did find out about it. I guess his messengers didn't go by, so he sent somebody out to find them. All they found was the ash heap. I don't know how he found out about it, but he did. So what did he do? Repent? No. He got another captain and sent 50 more men. They found Elijah. What did they say to him? Oh, man of God. Come down, go with us right now. And Elijah responded, If I'm a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and burn you up. And it did. There's 102 men that's ash heap. 50 men and their captains. Well, old king heard about it again. Did he repent? Oh, no. No, he didn't. He got him another captain, another 50 men, and sent them down to get Elijah. How would you like to have been that captain and that 50 men? Yeah. How did he approach Elijah? 
When they found him, the Bible says, he got down on his knees and said, oh, please don't kill me. Don't burn me up, please. <laughs> please, please don't burn me up. Let my life be precious in thy sight. Don't kill me. And the angel of the Lord said, okay, you can go with this one. And he did. He went back to the king as the king had requested. You know what he told him? Is there no God in Israel that you have gone and inquired of Beelzebub, the God of Ekron? Because you have done this thing, thus says the Lord, you will die and not live. What happened next? Well, Ahaziah died. That's what happened next. According to the word of the Lord. And where did that all happen? Samaria. Right there where this village was that the disciples and Jesus had gone to and they had rejected him, turned him away. You see, I'd, I'd read this passage many times and I just thought, well, the disciples were being a little hasty, a little hard-hearted. But the fact is, there's some reason along to what James and John were suggesting. Um, you know, Lord, if, if we'd burn up about, about 100 of these people, the rest of them might listen. It worked real good for Elijah. <laughs> it, it, it'd be a good time. It, they, these are the kind of people you got to get their attention, God. You can't, Lord, you can't just go in there and start preaching to them. But if you'll burn up a few of them, the rest of them will listen. There is some reason. There's some rationale to what they're trying to say. They were thinking. But there was a big difference. Remember who the Jehovah angel was in the Old Testament? You do remember, I've told you many times. Most of the time when the angel of the Lord, that's the Jehovah angel shows up, that was a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ himself. And what Elijah was doing, he was doing at the word of the Lord Jesus. But what James and John were suggesting was not his word at all. And that's exactly what he says to them. It's not my plan. It's not my purpose. You don't know what spirit you are of. And so we not only then see the rejecting community and and then we see immediately that reactive conclusion, but we also see the rebuking Christ. Because what they were saying was totally out of line with what Jesus was there to do. He didn't come to burn people up. He had had plenty of chances to do that already. There'd be plenty of time for him to move in judgment and make no mistake, brothers and sisters in Christ, that day is coming when he will move in judgment against this world. But it wasn't yet. The Son of Man has not come to destroy men's life, but to save them. You know, we could spring forward in our mind to Acts chapter 8, and we'd see that incredible time 
uh, when uh, uh, that preaching deacon turned evangelist Philip uh, would end up going up to Samaria and, uh, Samaria and bringing in a great revival as multitudes of people were saved. And by the way, that wasn't uh, uh, out of character because uh, 1 Timothy chapter 3 tells us that the deacons that deek well, <clears throat> they that use the office of a deacon well, purchase for themselves a good report, 1 Timothy chapter 3, and great boldness in the faith which is in Christ Jesus. And you see that play out with the two out of those seven that are mentioned next in the story of Acts after they were ordained and served well as deacons one of them just became the first Christian martyr, that was all. And one of them became the first Christian missionary. Great boldness in the faith. And so there was Philip out there preaching. People were being saved in abundance. And who knows how many thousands of the Samaritans came to know Christ. It's possible that some of the very ones that James and John wanted to burn alive, burn them up were later a part of the ones that were saved. They had no way of knowing that, but of course Jesus does. But even more, if he'd have burned a bunch of those people alive, how do you think they would have done when they went back and began to preach Jesus to the Samaritans? Think that might have affected that ministry a bit? I'm not come to destroy. There'll be plenty of time for that. Not come to judge people. Not come to kill people. I've come to save people. So what did Jesus do? In the face of this terrible rejection, as this community refused him and rejected him, what did he do? He didn't give up. He didn't quit. Didn't stop preaching. God had more work for him to do. Yes, he was on his way to Jerusalem, but until he got there, there was more to do. And he got on with business. There's another, another village down the road. There's another town. Let's keep going. See, we can learn a lot from this this morning. There may be times when you have a burden for somebody and you do everything you can to talk to them. You talk to them in love. You share the gospel with them and it falls on deaf ears. They show no inclination for what you have to say. You may go away from that effort feeling like a complete and total failure. But I want to remind you of a couple of things. First of all, the Word of God is powerful. It is sharper than a two-edged sword, and he promises us that my word will not return unto me void if you and I take care of our responsibility of getting the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ out. God will see to it that it bears fruit. He promised it, and I believe it. The Old Testament gave us this assurance. He that goeth forth with weeping, bearing precious seed, shall doubtless, 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 doubtless come again rejoicing, bringing the sheaves with him. We take care of sowing the seed, and God will see to it that there's a harvest. He promised it. I believe it. We may not ever see it. Don't have to. <laughs> we may not know what happened. Don't have to. I think one of the great joys of heaven is going to be walking around and meeting people on the streets of gold that are there because of our testimony, and we didn't even know it. We don't have to know it. God knows it. That's what matters. 
I might plant somebody else's waters. God gives the increase. It's all that matters. People get saved. That's what we're here for. You never know when people will get another chance. We never know how they might respond. Listen, I've witnessed to people who were comatose. I mean in a coma. Held their hand. You ask them to squeeze their hand, they don't squeeze my hand. But I witnessed to them. Shared the gospel with them. Prayed for them. Why? Because they're still alive. And I don't know but what they might be hearing, what I have to say. I've also thought every single time I've had to do that. And sometimes I've even prayed, God, I'm sorry that I wasn't more faithful. I should have knocked on this person's door before they got so bad off. God, forgive me. I've had to say that a lot. It might not have made any difference. I don't know. I might have gone to them, knocked on the door, and they might have slammed the door in my face. I know that. Maybe they heard. Maybe they didn't hear. I know that too. We can share the gospel as long as they're alive. As long as people are alive. We don't know how they might respond to the gospel. You may have a lost loved one you've witnessed to many times. And by everything you know and can see, they may not have ever been saved. But I'm telling you, we don't always know everything that goes on between them and God. I want you to think about this passage of Scripture where James and John was ready to burn up a whole town because they rejected Jesus. But Jesus knew what they didn't know. There was another chance coming down the line. And some of those people they wanted burned alive might in fact be the very people who one day would trust Jesus Christ, receive the gospel from someone else. Jesus asked, well, how long must I suffer with this faithless generation? How, must, how, how long will I have to put up with people who don't believe it unto me? Well, we can follow Jesus' example. Jesus cried out to God. He took that to God. When they rejected him, when they were dealing, dealing with all of this animosity, all this lack of faith, what did he do? He cried out to God. God answered, son, there's more work to be done. And Jesus got to it. What a great example for us to follow. Why did he do it? Because time was at hand. I want to tell you this morning, the time is still at hand. Yes, Jesus went to the cross and he completed that work. He said the time was at hand when he was going to be received up into glory. That happened after the cross, after the death, burial, the resurrection. He was received up into glory. But you know, he's not finished with this world, and he is coming back. He's coming back for his people. I hope you're going to go out in that number. We call it going out with a shout. And I hope that's what you're looking for. Because if you don't go out with a shout, you're going to be left behind. And the future of those who's left behind is not left for us to wonder about. Time is at hand. If you need to get right with Jesus Christ this morning, time's at hand. It's time to do it. Time's at hand. We got work that we need to do. Oh, Brother Rich, I'm discouraged. Hey, I get discouraged sometimes too. Life is discouraging, ministry is discouraging. You get tired of being told no. 
I'd never make it as a fuller brush salesman. I, I wouldn't. No offense to fuller brushes. They make good brushes. But uh, I, I, I'm not that guy that could go door to door and sell vacuum cleaners. And they tell you, well, you know, one out of 14. I, I'd quit at number 11. I promise you. I would, I, I'm not real good at that. But I'm not selling a thing. God didn't call me to be a salesman. Not you either. We are preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are sharing the good news. People are dying. They are going to hell. And there's only one thing that can save them. And you and I know what it is. We've got the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we never have to apologize for sharing it with anybody. We have a divine mandate. You shall be witnesses unto me. God help us. To fulfill that goal. There is work to do. The time is at hand. You get rejected. There's another village down the road. Keep going. Stand together, please.